0: In a series on Hosea. Last week, we just did verses one and two kind of as an introduction. And I know a number of you approached me with very concerned looks on your faces. Like, Bob, you only covered two verses. This is a longer book. Don't worry. Now, you know, we're going to get rolling. We're going to get moving. You can see on your sheet there that we have a little bit of a longer passage to deal with here. But I I wanted to take it all at once because it's such an important part of this this book. And so we looked at the beginning about this man named Hosea. He's a prophet of God. And we looked at all this. He marries this woman named Gomer who, who is unfaithful to him. And God is going to use this as a living illustration of how he feels towards his people. And so when they see Hosea and they see an unfaithful wife, they're going to think, oh, she's us. Hosea is like God, and God is going to, I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing. God is going to, in a sense, vent. He's going to tell us how he feels about sin, about unfaithfulness, about how we treat him. He's going to lay it out, and it's very, it's, it's, it's brutal at times. And even in this passage, this is, this is difficult to, be, to see and read through and try to understand, but As always in Scripture, there's going to be this beauty that comes out of it. There's going to be something that is going to turn it, and and we'll see how God works. So I just wanted you to think, because I, I was thinking about this, you know, because we're going to get into a passage where names are so important. And you think, what is, what's in a name? That's a passage from uh, Romeo and Juliet. I love Shakespeare and I kind of, kind of an expert on Shakespeare. So I thought, here's a, this is a picture of, uh, you know, Romeo with Juliet at the balcony asking her to let her hair down so he can climb up. Um, beautiful, beautiful uh, passage. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know, I don't know why I do that. All right, so let's just get off of that. But it says in Romeo and Juliet, we have the one passage that is, is, that is a very profound passage. What is in a name? And then that which we call a rose by uh, any other name would smell as sweet. In other words, a rose is going to smell sweet whether we call it a rose or a dandelion. It doesn't matter. So what's in a name? Because now we have two people, if you know in that story, two people who are forbidden Forbidden to to communicate, much less fall in love with each other. And and Juliet says, you know, basically she says, you're from this family, Montague, and I have nothing to do with this family, but you I love. So what's in a name? What's in a name, right? But there's a flip side to this. The, The thing I think about is, because a bad name, like in Romeo, a bad name doesn't change a beautiful character. But the flip side is this. A good name does not change a bad character. You can dress it up, but it's still what it is. So here we see the nation of Israel. They have a good name. The people of God. That's their name. That's what God gave them. But they are sinful and they are wicked. And they're going their own way. And so in today's passage, we're going to see God take off on these names. We're going to see names that symbolize what is going on in the people of Israel and what is going on in the heart of God. So what does a name mean for Israel? What does a name mean for us today? The Bible is full of names that are assigned to us as children of God. That's one of them. Assigned to us as followers of Jesus Christ. And so we saw Hosea was called to Mary. Now I believe he loves her. This woman, Gomer, and again, well, let me reiterate this. People can go crazy with this on male, female. No, it can happen both ways, so don't read into it more than is there. Hosea is called to marry this woman. He loves her. It's not just symbolic. He's not just acting this out to be a part of God's play. He loves her. It's real. And his heart is broken. I did a wedding yesterday. That's a weird segue coming from a broken heart. <laughs> Not so good at that stuff. I did a wedding yesterday. It was a beautiful wedding. It just was great. But the, uh, the bride and the groom wrote their own vows, which sometimes at weddings they do. And, and, and uh, it can be very, it can be great. Sometimes it can be brutal, right? If someone loses control and they're just crying all over the place and you're just waiting... So they finally subside and they can go on with. It. And if you did that, I'm sorry, I'm not. Trying, I shouldn't. I shouldn't even be saying this. So, but I, I thought about this because the vows were beautiful. I mean, they were very poignant. They were very. They, they they just were great vows. And and if you want to know later what I think great vows are, let me know. I'll let you know what I think great vows are. But. But one time I was doing a wedding, and this guy—he did his vows, and he was kind of a very quiet guy and didn't say much. We did counseling together, and he'd say some things, but he's very quiet. Well, all of a sudden, man—he he had those vows written out, and he just started going. And this dude was a writer. I mean, he was—it re- was good. He just—he finished, and I was just like, "Wow!" Oh yeah, we're at a wedding, right? But I just couldn't. It was like, "Wow! That was awesome." <laughs> You're up, you know? And she's like, "Ah," but. But, you know, you think about this. Vows are serious. I love you. I promise to forsake all others. I'll be with you through the best and worst of times. These are serious things. And yesterday, you know, in this wedding, serious things. And with Hosea, he took these vows. And he meant it. I love you. I love you. And there there seems to have been an early period of faithfulness in the marriage. Kind of like it was with Israel with God. And then the unfaithfulness came. Just like what happened with Israel. Israel. And she kept, and we'll get on to this in the book, she kept leaving him and forsaking. And the children of Israel kept leaving God and forsaking God. And they rationalized it. And they justified it. And so God, it's, his anger is building because he hates sin. And he hates what sin does to people and human beings and nations. And we, we see in a book at a similar time, in, in the book of Malachi, where God just lays this out because this is what they're doing. They rationalize, they justify their failure. God says, as a son, and I'm just going to read you a few quick passages from Malachi. Just listen. A son honors his father. He says, I'm a father. Where's the honor that's due to me? Where's the respect that's due to me? And they said, where have we not honored you? And he said, your priests show contempt for my name. How have the priests showed contempt? And they're just giving these. And he says, you're offering defiled food at my altar. I told you how the offerings were supposed to go and you're not doing it right. I'd rather you didn't do it than do it wrong. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied the Lord? And he told them, he says, this is because this is what you say. You say, all who, do, all who do evil are okay in the eyes of the Lord. And he's pleased with them. Or you say, It's okay. Where's God anyway? You just say, he's not going to do anything. Then later God says, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. And you ask, how are we robbing you? You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. And they say, how have we spoken? You see what's happening? They're rationalizing. They're trying to justify. They're twisting things. They twist God's word to justify their sin. They make it look like they're innocent. And God's some sort of a taskmaster that, that, that is being unreasonable. And so when the people of Israel, as this becomes illustrated in real life, as they heard about the scandal of Gomer, it pointed to them. It pointed to their heart. At this time, they were in this time of prosperity. We talked a little bit about the geopolitical stuff that was going on at the time. And the, the, the big power of the world, Israel, uh, Assyria, had been looking that way, but got caught up in other wars. So... It, Assyria was distracted for like 60 or 70 years. It was a long distraction, right? So they were distracted. So, so Israel and Judah had this time of prosperity. They had, they had, the rains were good. You know, the weather was right. The crops grew. They were making money. International trade up and down the main trade road came right down along the coast there. They, they were doing well. So it's a time of peace, time of prosperity. All their tweets ended in hashtag blessed, right? That's what was going on then. Just bought a new mansion. Hashtag blessed. Right? But at the same time, they're pursuing other gods. They're pursuing other loves. At the same time, they're ignoring. God holds them again. You're ignoring the poor. There are people who are coming to you who are desperate and you're throwing them away. He says, you are disobeying my commands to you. You're being unjust. You're cheating God and you're cheating other people. So they abandoned God in their hearts and in their actions, just like Gomer did to Hosea. So God pronounces judgment. And the names of these kids that we're going to see all express this broken relationship. So I want you to see the first thing we're going to look at is this idea that this relationship has gone wrong. It's been spoiled. It's gone sour. It's, it's going in the wrong direction. Verse 3, So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblium, And she conceived and bore him a son. Now, if your daughter's name is Gomer and your name is Diblium, there's a, I just, it's just, uh, yai, just not good right from the get go, right? Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. So, remember talked about this there's two nations really the upper 10 tribes were the nation of israel the southern two tribes is 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 called the nation of judah and so the upper 10 tribes now he's addressing them and what happened what is he talking about here because here's the thing names are hard when you're having kids i have five kids oh names were hard and part of the problem at least for me part of the problem was i couldn't figure out what to name our kids but my wife would come up with ideas and I had lots of good reasons why her ideas were no good. But I just couldn't replace them with good. I would just say, Bev, think about that name. Think about the playground. <laughs> think about what kids are gonna do to our kid if they have a name like Dakota or something. You know, I, I just, you, know, you named your kid after a state. I, I, okay, and if you're named Dakota, you know, I've changed, I think it's not a bad name actually. I can't extricate myself from some of these things. But I would just say, Bev, think about the playground. Think about what this rhymes with. Do you want me to tell you what this name rhymes with? Come on. Let's think about that guy. No, not that name. That sounds like one of your former boyfriends, the big ugly one. <laughs> oh, they were all ugly, as, as I remember. But, um, <laughs> um, you know, just, uh, and, and, and what happens, you know, people name their kids things that, they're, that are cool and cute. That's what they want. And so to have God say to Hosea, I'm going to tell you what to name your kid, I mean, my initial reaction would be like, yeah, sweet. This takes a lot of pressure off me. But not here. You're not here. Because the first name is, is Jezreel, but it's not necessarily a ne- that's not necessarily a negative name. It really just means God sows. You know, but, but it can be positive, God sows and there's blessing, or it can be negative, God sows destruction, but it's not in itself, but what happens here is it's connected to someone. It's connected to Jehu, all right. It's connected to a man named Jehu. He was a king, and he his lineage is now they're ruling Israel, the northern ten tribes. Now Jehu, there's a great line in Second Kings. Jehu is uh, coming to attack. And they're looking at him, and they said, who's that in the distance? It looks like it's a chariot. And one guy goes, it must be Jehu because he drives furiously. I like that. That's my life verse. It also led to a weird indie post-hardcore band in 1990 called Drive Like Jehu. And they're, you can get their album online if you want. It has nothing to do with the biblical Jehu. But so why Jehu? Why is, he, why is God God is upset with Jehu? Why? Because years earlier, many years earlier, there was a man named Ahab who was king. He was incredibly evil. He was leading Israel into horrible things. There was a woman named Jezebel who was his wife, and she was doing horrible things, incredible evil. And so God sent Jehu to depose them, kill them, right? So God said, Jehu, you are going to be my man to take them off the throne, and you will assume the throne. Go to Jezreel and do that. So he drove furiously to Jezreel. But here's the thing. Jehu went way farther than God commanded. He was vindictive. He was killing his own personal enemies at the same time. He was finding the people that he had a beef with, and he was killing them at the same time, saying, I'm doing this because God charged me to do this. In the name of the Lord, I'm killing these people. It happened that the king of Judah was just visiting Ahab at the time, and Jehu killed him also. And then some people that were friends of Ahab, or people who knew him, for he killed, he was purging all his political enemies. And God said, no, that's beyond what is right. And, worse, he did it in the name of God. God said, I told you just to do this. You did this. And it was a massacre so that Jezreel became a name that was associated with the massacre that Jehu committed against his enemies. And so what's happening here? He says... In verse four, then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. So what is he saying there? Break your bow. He's saying this. They are trusting in military and political alliances to protect them, to get what they want done, done. And he's saying the very thing you are trusting, the bow, the strength of the bow will be broken. Your prosperity and your strength give you an illusion of security. True security only comes from God. That is true for us too. Nationally, as American citizens, we have to understand we have a higher calling. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. And what we trust in can be broken. We need to be careful what we put our trust in. And why do we do that? Why do we trust things? And it's often because we feel like they've worked out well in the past. It's you know a person can say, "Well, I've always been healthy. I'm going to be fine." Or a person says, "I've always been able to take care of myself. I've always been smart enough to get through these things to make things work out well. I've handled this before. I can do it again." And what is that saying? That's saying this, "Look what I have done. Look at me. Where is my trust? It's in the wrong thing. It's in me. It's in strength. It's in a bow." We read, let not the wise man trust in his wisdom. Let not the rich man trust in his riches. Let not the wise man, the wisdom and strong man in his strength. Why? He says, trust in me. Trust in me. And that's what's happening there. Because even your strongest point can become your weakness if you are not trusting God. And God is warning them that judgment is coming. The relationship is falling apart. They've lost sight of something. They lost sight of the fact that every sinful thought, every sinful action wounds the heart of God and arouses his righteousness. God hates sin. He hates what sin does to us, and he hates what it does to those around us, and he sees his children misusing the poor, children, misusing children and women, misusing other people from other nations, just misusing people, and he says, I hate that, I hate that. And so, a relationship that's gone wrong. Now we see a relationship, it's at the breaking point. Go, verse 6 Gomer conceived again. Now there's an interesting little change here. In the first time, it says, Gomer bore him a son. Now the wording is changed Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And now we are not sure if this is his daughter. This is a time frame, and it can be fairly long between children—not necessarily, but it can be. And so we don't know, but we know she, as the story comes, she's been she's been sleeping around, she's been going and seeing other men, and so now the wording changed. It's not she bore him a daughter; it's she conceived and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to Hosea, "Call her Lo Ruhamah, which means not loved." Uh, this is a hard word to translate. It has this idea of no mercy, no mercy. He says, "For I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should at all forgive them. I will no longer show mercy to Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show yet I will show love, I will show mercy to Judah, and I will save them not by bow, sword or battle or by horses or horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. All right, so now we have this second child that's been born. There's some time that has passed. Uh, the relationship is at its breaking point. And I think about this with, I think about this with children. I, I'm, a, I'm a grandfather now, and I take my kids now sometimes to the place where everyone goes to meet each other and talk and show off how cool their kids are or how cool their names are, the local playground. So I go with my kids, my grandkids, to the local playground. playground there's all these people around, you know, and they're like, oh, that's my, that's my little daughter over there. That's my daughter. Said, her name's Rhododendron. Yeah, it's like, oh, wow. I hope your kid learns to spell her name before she's 12, you know. But, but, and, and, and I'm there with my grandkids, and I'm just kind of like, keep, keep your dirty little children away from my grandkids, man. Your kids are all... And, and, and people get around, they talk, you know. And I'm weird this way, but I just think, what happened with Hosea? You know, imagine him at the local playground. Wow, your little girl's so cute. What's her name? No Mercy. Her name is No Mercy. That one there is Jezreel. How's that fit, right? I can imagine, oh, wow, the time sure flies. You know, I gotta go. Come on, kids, you know, come on, Chartreuse, come on, Dandelion, we're leaving. Get away, get away. Oh, you made a new friend? Oh, never gonna see that kid again, trust me. We are never going back. You know, you could just see that this is a powerful statement. Mercy is the lifeline of God's people. Throughout the Old Testament, they've gone astray. They've done evil, and God's mercy has been there for them. And when God called them out on their sin, and they were guilty, and they often tried to avoid guilt, he would still be there with their mercy. They would trivial, trivialize it. they say, this is not so bad, just like we do. You have to understand the circumstances. Or they'd start redefining sin. They would go all out, like in the book of Malachi, like we just read, of trying to redefine sin so it doesn't seem so bad. And sometimes, you know, even in our own lives, someone hurts you, and, and you try to confront them, and they turn it around, and they somehow try to make it like it's all your fault, does that happen to anybody? I, I know it happens. I know it happens because I do that. I, I, I'm terrible at that. And when, and when that happens, what is it? It's, it's so much worse. It adds to the heartbreak. It's like, man, you have hurt me so deeply. And now you're trying to tell me it's my fault that you've hurt me so deeply. That's a classic maneuver in, in dysfunctional marriages. And God is heartbroken. He's heartbroken. We, he, he's trying to express this to us. You know, if somebody said, oh, this just breaks God's heart. You know, we're kind of like, oh, yeah, that's, that's bad. huh? But see, now if we start seeing it in a visual, like they did then, a visual, a tangible way, they see Hosea go by with his two little kids, and they're thinking, well, where's his wife? Well, I know where his wife is. She's at that house, and I don't think that one's his. You know how people can talk, and they see it, and God says, oh, oh does that bother you? They're, oh, it's terrible, terrible what, terrible what she's doing to him. And God is like, you do that to me, but worse. You do that to me, but it's worse. He's making it very so we can feel it. And God is heartbroken. And God is saying to the northern kingdom, it's it's too much. I can't go any further. It's like in, in, in Romans 2 where God says, they push, they push, push. And God finally says, he gave them over. He said, fine, have it. It's going to destroy you. And the kingdom of Israel, the northern tribes, they pushed and they 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 sinned and they kept taking advantage and taking advantage. And God is finally saying, Okay, you can have it. Assyria will have victory over you. And they're thinking, Assyria? We haven't heard from them in years. Are they still around? Yes, they are. And they're gathering strength. And they're hungry and they're looking south to the breadbasket of the Middle East. Biblically, no one in this room deserves mercy. No one in this room deserves forgiveness. But there is hope. There is hope. Even for the people of the northern kingdom, God is going to offer out hope. So we see the relationship has gone wrong. We see the relationship's at a breaking point, And now the relationship is severed. Verses 8 and 9. After she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Doesn't say it's his. Then the Lord said, Call him Loami, which means not my people, or not mine. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. And so here we go. This child is more than likely not Hosea's, hence the name. And then we go back to the playground. That's a cute little boy. What's his name? Not mine. Oh, who does he belong to? Is he yours? Yes. He's mine. What's his name? Not mine. Not mine. You said, you said he was yours. Yes. Your kid's name is not mine. Yes. It's like, it's like, it's like the old Abbott and Costello. Who's on first? You know? It's like, can you imagine that? Whose kid is that? Not mine. Wait, it's not yours. Then it would be the same old thing. Oh, wow. Look how time flies, right? If somebody, if you're, if you're sitting there and you're talking to some guy, is that your kid? Yeah. What's his name? It's not mine. Okay, I'm out. I'm out. I, don't play with him. That's what I'd be saying. Come on, Indiana. Come on, marsupial. Let's go. We're out of here. Let's get out of here. <laughs> I, yeah. And if anybody's kid here is named marsupial, listen, I'm sorry. I tried to pick one that I was sure no one had named their kid. Just to make a point, you know, Israel, were they were God's people. It was God's special name. You're my people. You're mine. You're mine. You're mine. You know, kind of like kind of like we do, if you have kids, sometimes you have special names for your kids or they're kind of intimate and cute or if, you're, if, if there's a special person in your life that you love dearly, you know, often the names are a little more intimate, maybe less cute, but more intimate. Um, I was with a guy a while back and his wife started approaching him from a little ways. He goes, yeah, here comes my pumpkin. I was like, really? Really, that's it? That's what you chose? That's not good, right? Well, here God is saying, these are my people. They're mine. I love them. And he's saying, I'm taking my name back. I'm taking my name. You don't want it. I can tell. You're not my people. Because the name of God is based on their response to his redemptive work. And they're not responding at all to his redemptive work. They're going, they're going everywhere but to him. So they have this outward name, but there's no inward reality in their life. And so now these names point to judgment. Judgment. These people, the people were persuaded that they were doing fine, but actually they were living in sin. And God had to do something radical to wake them up because nothing was working. We get so callous to sin that it seems like no big deal. But it is always a big deal to God. It is always a big deal to God. And we see that in Jesus. The people that most of the Jews thought were the most righteous, the most godly people in the whole nation the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders, they were the ones that Jesus spoke the most harshly to. And you know, I'm not telling you something you don't know, but let me just, this is, this is, this is from Matthew 23. It's not on your sheets, not on the screen. Just listen to this. Matthew 23, the whole passage is full of this, but this is just parts of it. He's talking about these religious leaders. They preach, but they do not practice. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. And then he looks at them and he says, Woe to you! Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! You are hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he comes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Jesus is talking to the religious leaders, he calls them blind fools. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you are hypocrites. You tithe on the tiniest things, but when it comes to the things that are important, justice and mercy and faithfulness, you neglect that. Woe to you, scribes and and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and indulgence. You are blind, Pharisees. First clean the inside, and then the outside can be cleaned. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you are hypocrites. He's on a theme, I can tell, right? For you're like a whitewashed tomb, which outwardly appears beautiful, but inside are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So also you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He says you've got a name, and it does not match up with anything that's going on inside of you. You say you are something, but you are not that. He, and I mean, this is, this is strong stuff, right? This is strong stuff. And so in Hosea here, we see this progression in these names. First, he's saying, you're guilty. Then he's saying, I'm withdrawing my mercy. I've stopped holding back judgment. Judgment is coming. And then he says, you have totally forsaken me. You are not mine. You are not mine. And this looks grim, and they deserve it. They have spurned God over and over. And now the day of reckoning has arrived but wait. Didn't God make a promise? We talked last week about this covenant that God made with Abraham to be the people, to have a people that he's going to raise up and they're going to be numerous and he will be their God no matter what and if they sin he'll pay the price for it? Yes he did. So we get to a grand reversal. It says yet the Israelites will be. I mean, this is a sudden turn. The Israelites will be like the sand of the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said of them, you are not my people, they will be called the children of the living God. He's reversing just what he just said. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. See, he's, he's walking back all three names that he'd just given. He says, "Say to your brothers, "My people, not, not my people, my people." And say to your sisters, "My loved one, the one I have mercy on." He's reversed it all. It's like God is saying, "Can you see how I feel? Can you see how this hurts? Can you see what this does to me? You deserve punishment, but I'm going t- I still love you. That's amazing. That's amazing. That's why we sang, there is no other love like God's love. Everyone else has a love. God says no. There's no other love. One commentator wrote this, grace always has a way of interrupting the oracles of doom. The Abrahamic covenant is going to be fulfilled. The names are reversed. And, and, and the thing I think about, okay, I'm a parent. I think about it, I think these poor kids with these names. I mean, I think that today when I meet some parents with these poor kids with their names. But God says, I'm flipping their names. Their names are not curses now. Their names are blessings. I'm, I'm flipping the whole thing over. And the interesting thing here, because, because this is where we get into this, you know, the prophecy that's involved here. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land. They're looking, he's looking forward to a time when there will be one, the one, and that's Jesus. He will be the one that will unite God's people. The person where justice and judgment meet mercy and love, that's Jesus. And Jesus reversed it. He took sin upon a person who was not a sinner. The innocent took the place of the condemned. And one of the keys of Christianity, one of the keys of living the Christian life is this, seeing what Jesus did enables me to to receive mercy. Seeing that I'm a sinner enables me to receive mercy. And the more clear my picture is of my sin, the more amazing is the mercy and grace that I have received from God. And so he wants us in in this, he, he wants us to see where we wander, where we stray. He wants us to grapple with this. Even now, coming forward, 2500, 2,700 years from Hosea, He's saying to us, as people who claim to be children of God, He's saying, "Grapple with this. Where are you wandering? Where are you committing adultery? Where are you straying? Where are you taking my mercy for granted? See, see yourself clearly, because when you see yourself clearly, the, the, God's grace is so amazing. His mercy is so incredible. And the problem we talk about, that we are talking about the Pharisees in John chapter 9, one of the things that Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, you say you see, but actually you're blind. If you will admit you're blind, you will begin to see. Because he was saying, the Pharisees are saying this, look, we're good, we're good, we got it together, we don't need what you're offering, Jesus. They were blind to their need. Why? Because they had deceived themselves. In Luke 18, when Jesus talks about the Pharisee and the tax collector coming together to pray, what happens? Neither one of them deserves mercy, but the Pharisee was resting on what he did. He was saying, God, I just thank you that I tithe and I do this and I do this and I'm not like him and I'm not like her and I don't have kids like that, you know, and I don't have this and I have done really well and I really am trying to honor you and bless you. What was he doing? He was relying on what he did to be in with god and the tax collector walks up and what does he say he says god i'm a sinner and i don't deserve anything and so i'm asking for your mercy right now i'm asking for your mercy he saw he saw he saw himself he admitted he was guilty he threw himself at the mercy of the court and jesus jesus said who walks out justified the tax collector That is so hard for them to to swallow and to understand, and Jesus makes sure we understand all this. He talks about this in so many ways. He tells us that not just the doing, but the thinking of it is sin also. We're all guilty. We're all tax collectors. We're all Gomer. But through this incredible reversal, the names have changed. And throughout the New Testament, we're given new names. We read this earlier. I wanna just go over it real quick, real, real fast here. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people. See, he's quoting Hosea. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's connecting that passage. And he's saying, God's given us these names, names of mercy, names of grace. He says, We're called. We're called the chosen ones. We're called His people. We're called royal. We're called priests. He says we are holy. That word actually is just the word, uh, uh, the word for saint, a holy one. It's the word. He says we're saints. He's declared that for us to be true. We're part of a new nation, a new kingdom. We have a new authority in our lives. And then I love this one. He says, "You are God's special possession." Okay, this, that's a really interesting word. In the Greek language, it's very hard to translate because the, 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 the tense of it emphasizes something. It emphasizes, it's, it's called, uh, they call it the circumstance of securing. In other words, it emphasized how focused and how hard God worked to make me his possession. He says you are his special possession and that word emphasizes what it costs God to possess me. Because it cost his son. And you know, we can think, oh, it's God, you know, and he's this, and Jesus came and died. And and we can totally neglect the heartbreak of losing a son or a daughter. We can totally walk over that and not think that because he's God, somehow God didn't experience that. But the whole book of Hosea is God saying, look, I'm experiencing this crap. This is killing me. And this word, special possession, emphasizes how much it costs God to possess me, to purchase my salvation. And so he says, you're his special possession. You, you personally, you're incredibly, special to God. So this is who you are. This is who you are. This is not how you necessarily feel all the time. This is not necessarily what people tell you you are, but God says, this is what you are to me. Tell me someone who's more important than me. You are his chosen ones. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's personal, special possession. He went to great lengths to get you. And it cost him his son. And so we see in Hosea that God is heartbroken. We see that he's angry. We see that he hates sin. But then his mercy and his grace and his love just come shining through. In the midst of that, he's overwhelmed by his love. And he says, you know what? You are my people. You know what? You will be shown mercy. You know what? I love you. He lovingly calls them back. Just as he lovingly calls us when we go astray to come back. Just as he's lovingly calling you if you if you're you're sitting here and you go I don't even I haven't even this. I don't even know what this guy's talking about. He's calling you. He's calling you to become his child, to become his daughter, to become his son. Why? Because he went to great lengths to give you this opportunity. It cost him his son. To do this, that's how much he loves you, and so he's lovingly calling us, because when we do that, we become his righteous ones, sons and daughters of the King. Let's pray, Father. We thank you for your Word, God. In all these things, help us to wrestle and grapple with areas where we may be struggling, things that we may trivialize or downplay, things that we know hurt you, and upset you, and, and, and even make you angry. Father, help us to see things the way you see things, and help us to see people the way you see people. Help us, even in things like this homeless ministry, to see these men and women in incredibly difficult circumstances and know they were created in your image, and you desperately want to be there for them and walk with them in these difficult times. Help us to be a part of that message to them as we serve. And Father, wherever we go, work or school or home, places where uh, we just hang out with people, help us to see people the way you see people and to love them the way you love them. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna take an offering. This is what our regular tenders and our members do as a part of their worship. If you are a guest here, please do not feel compelled or pressured.